You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 621 for July 12th, 2023. On this episode, trumpeter Stephen Bernstein. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show on which I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. Stephen talks about the phone calls he makes while he walks his dog, and believe me, you do not want to miss the people he calls. It's wild. You can hear the bonus episode by becoming a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. When you do, you'll also get early access to every episode of the show. You'll get other behind-the-scenes info, other bonus shows as well. Plus, for every episode, I choose one Patreon supporter to name as the sponsor of that episode. This episode was brought to you by my dear friend Patrick McCurry. Thanks, Patrick. Patrick, as a matter of fact, is on quite a few bonus episodes, along with my friend Aaron Stabell, who is also a guest on uh, main episodes as well. You can check all those out when you become a member. Stephen Bernstein has a new album with his band Sex Mob. It's called The Hard Way. Here's the opening track. Welcome to the Jazz Session. It's so good to be here, Jason Crane, after 16 years in the desert. I have brought you into the Oasis. It's great to yes, uh, have. great to have you here. We don't normally start by talking about producers, but Scotty Hart is a, a huge part of this uh, record, but also just a, a big part of the story of Sex Mob. You guys have collaborated for a long time. Uh, can you just kind of put him in some context for us, especially maybe for folks who might just be hearing his name for the first time? Sure, Scotty Hard, also known as Scott Harding. Um, I met him through Michael Blake, who was playing Michael and I. Michael's a tenor saxophone player, and we played together in the Lounge Lizards for 10 years. Scotty started hanging out. He was a friend of Michael's from Vancouver, and he was a musician and was an engineer. And he was working with Teal Macero, but he was also working with Wu-Tang Clan and Prince Paul. So he had this very interesting kind of double life of working with T.O. and using his jazz knowledge and kind of doing this whole other hip-hop side of things. And he would, you know, start to get us on a few sessions, you know, with Prince Paul. And then 
he recorded this record that Michael Blake did with Teal, which was an amazing experience with Teal Macero. And, uh, you know, as a trumpet player, to make a record with Teal Macero is a big deal. And um, I'm just going to be the footnote here for listeners to tell them that it's a big deal because Teal produced many of the great jazz records of all time, including many with Miles. Yes, including Bitches Brew, which all yes. those edits are Teal. I mean, Miles and the band recorded the music, but Teal created what we know as Bitches Brew. So Teal is a very important figure in music history. So he's, I think the first other record he produced of our friends was um, the Medeski Martin Wood records. So anyway, when we got the first Sex Bob record, the way we did it was we got into a studio called J&W. It was a, uh, a jingle studio. And what they did was they'd only do jingles from whatever, nine in the morning till five. And we'd come in and we work from seven at night till four in the morning. And so that you could imagine what <laughs> what the mindset was, right? And, um, you know, we tried to, you know, uh, and we just kind of let Scott do his thing. We'd go in there and we'd improvise these very long versions of the tunes we'd been playing live. And Scott would do what Scott does. And we just let him go. And Scott and I were recently talking about this, like how many things that he did on the first record became part of the sex mob language. Now, a lot of what it is reverbs and things like that, that we can't really do live, but a lot of it is dubbing. And for those who don't know about dub music, that's a kind of a Jamaican form of music that I was always really into. Um, I had gotten the record Garvey's Ghost when I was 18, which is a Burning Spear record, which is the dub version of Marcus Garvey. And I love that record, really into at least very So to have a guy mixing my record with that kind of sensibility was really neat. Now, I was doing things like that live, but when you hear it on your own record, it kind of be, really cements that as part of what you do. So, yeah, Scott and I started, he made the first Sex Mob record, and that was 26 years ago, I guess. And that's who Scott Harding, Scotty Hart is. went into the studio and just kind of let him go was that was the bit of him kind of being let go was that the stuff he did after the fact or even in the actual when you guys were actually playing right then were you playing that you already knew what you were going to do it was what he did after or am i not understanding that uh, so i never know what i'm going to do i'm i'm a at my whole thing about if you listen to my records i'm really into first and second takes my everyone has their own philosophy of recording i love mistakes if there's no mistakes, it means when you're not trying anything. 
So my records are full of mistakes and I don't want people to know and I don't want to know. I want to capture that moment of discovery. That's what I'm doing. And then afterwards, you let Scott go and he would just cut things out and take things he did, you know, he would just, oh, this is too long. He'd just cut something down and be great. But I love that. He goes, it's too long. It's gone. And then he would dub things out. You know, he doesn't have a, a, a lot of the things a traditional jazz producer has as far as like, oh, this is a great solo. Let's keep the whole thing. He's like, ah, it's too long. And he just cuts half of it out, you know, because <laughs> that's his sensibility. He's thinking song form, not like, oh, my God, listen how great that guy's playing. Like, And I think that really helped me kind of start making these records that weren't so much about solos, but were about form and vibrations, way more about feeling, you know, capturing the moments of improvisation, but kind of crafting it into a song form. And that's such an act of trust to, to go into a situation where you're going to play and knowing that it's some of it's going to end up on the cutting room floor or repositioned or put together in interesting ways. I mean, to hand, to hand your music to someone with that level of trust seems fairly staggering to me. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm, that's why it's a record and not a live performance. You know, I'm way more interested in making a, a cool record. And I know if I make a record with Scott Harding, you know, Scotty hard, that's what you're going to do. I mean, why else have Scotty hard there? You know, I've made, and there's sex mom records we've made without Scotty Hard, and they, they're very different, you know. But when Scotty Hard's there, that's what happens. I, I'll never forget when we made uh, Dime Grime Palace, and then we did this version of Professor Longhair's um, Baby Let Me Hold Your Hand. And it was like this great, <laughs> this great trumpet solo. He just like, that's too long. And just like got rid of it. I was like, this Scott. He's like, man, it's too long. I'm like, okay. And I just had to say, you got it, Scotty. This is like, this is how, what you're hearing. This is what you're hearing, you know? record uh the hard way there one of the things i really love about i've always been just a big fan of the kind of intersection of you know synthetic electronic and acoustic uh you know going going back to coming up on like prog rock and bands like tears for fears where there was a drum machine and a live drummer and that kind of thing and this record it doesn't sound like either of those things but i think it has a, a not dissimilar sensibility about like let's just smash these worlds together and see what happens and so i'm i'm curious about what you guys talked about and then what the kind of the base layers that you started with in terms of the performance were well i'll just tell you something interesting this is the second electronic record we've made because we made sexotica yep and that was good and evil and the process for that was 
we recorded Sex Mom songs and then we gave it to them and they worked with it. And we recorded a bunch of levels of Kenny doing percussion. So they had all this raw material to work with and they worked with it. This was completely different. Now, Scott and I have been talking about this for a long time. What he did was he sent me tracks. Now, the track could be anything from a two-bar loop to a piece like the piece that became Fletcher Henderson, which was an eight-minute long, I don't know what you call it, hip-hop music concrete. It was had all these... Um, tempo changes and he like he did a thing where like the drum machine would get faster and faster and faster and there'd be a new section and then the drum machine would get slower and slower and slower and there'd be a new section and what i would do for each loop he sent me a loop or complete piece that he sent me i wrote a piece to go over it so we recorded like in the case of fletcher henderson we recorded over a pre-existing eight minute track that he had created some of it was just had sounds on it. Some of it had some harmonic information. Some of it had like these percussion beds, percussion loops. And whatever the piece was, I would write a piece to go over it. So then what happened was Sex Mom came in and like the process I was talking about, about being welcoming the improvisation and welcoming wrong notes. I just would show it to him and we would do one take, maybe two takes, but usually just like we never played it before. Now, the reason I like that is what you're getting is the sound of four musicians exploring something and listening and discovering. Also, because Scott has a small studio, Kenny was playing his electronic drums, not his drum set. So all the live drums were recorded afterwards. So we went through and we cut um, a piece for each of these 10 pieces that Scott had sent to me. After that, then, and we did it, I guess, in two days, and then Kenny came in and played drum set over him. All the horn overdubs were done at the moment. Basically, we got done with the piece, and I said, oh, I want to add a few more horns to it. We would just do it right then. You know, I like the idea of not overthinking it like okay i get a feeling like and sometimes i had written sometimes i had written a third horn harmony knowing that i wanted some more horns on something and sometimes it was something i heard at the moment like oh let's 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 flesh this out a little bit then and we added guitars later and then scott sent tracks to medeski uh vijay Iyer, and dj olive and after that and that wasn't all, all like in order because Scott had already started editing and compiling things before he sent things out to people. And then Scott does what Scott does. And he would, I mean, Scott does everything. Scott will like take a horn part I wrote and the horn part may start on one and we record it on one. And I listen back and suddenly the horn part starts on three. I mean, he'll just do anything. He just reimagines the music. So it is truly a collaborative effort more than anything we've ever done it's really collaborative you often hear that phrase the studio as an instrument but i think a lot of times people say it and it's not quite as true as it is in what you're describing right now i mean this really sounds like the studio as an instrument and the, and well, the producer as an instrumentalist right well it also takes someone with a vision like scott you know scott's got a real vision and you know part of this idea of this was you know, if you listen to all 10 Sex Mob records, they're all different. And even at any of my records, the only two records that are slightly the same are the first M two MTO records because 
they were just the same recording session I made two records out of it. But my whole way of looking about music and and of making records is that I don't really am not interested in recreating something I've already done. So every Sex Mob record has a very discreet sound and a discreet kind of focus. And this was like the one that is definitely the most, you know, and it's not just a sex because it really is a Sex Mob and Scott Harding record. Think about it. It starts with Scott Harding. It doesn't start with Sex Mob. It starts with, with Scotty Hart. either working with Scott over the years or preparing for this particular project, does that influence the way you write? For example, knowing that he's the kind of person who will take an entire trumpet solo out because it's too long. Do you aim for concision in these settings, in this particular setting? I don't aim for anything. I just go. I'm a, I'm a big believer in intuition. You know, I don't try to overthink things. I just write what I hear. And I know that the guys in the band are going to add something really unique to it and i know there's gonna be mistakes and i know it's not gonna be exactly what i wrote and i've always been into that i mean you know if you listen to duke ellington there's all this beautiful written music but there's always somebody improvising at the same time you always hear like one sound that's not written there's one sound of you know i came and i didn't come up with but you know i was thinking about this phrase beautiful chaos I've been using that word a lot. You know, some people said, oh, what you do is like organized chaos. And I said, no, it's, I think of it as beautiful chaos. And people say, well, what style of music do you play? I said, beautiful chaos, you know? And that's just my personal philosophy of how I like to make music. Now, I don't have to, obviously, if I'm playing with Levon, and he's not live anymore, but when I was playing with Levon, we played the Ramble Band. That's not what we do. You know, I'm a professional musician. I do all kinds of things as a side person, but when I'm doing my own music, that's really what I love, and that's what I'm going for. The first time I saw you was when the Sex Mob Does Bond album came out, and I saw you uh, at the Knitting Factory, and you said a thing between songs, I, I'm going to paraphrase now, and I have paraphrased to many people over the years because I, it just always uh, stuck with me, which is you You said, I, I think actually you took a question from somebody in the audience, and um, you said... The thing about playing this Bond music is we can play the most out stuff and then we drop in like eight bars of the James Bond theme and it like kind of immediately everyone's cool with all the other stuff that we did. And I don't want to read too much into that, but I always just thought, yeah, that's great. Like, I really appreciated that as a member of the audience, like I who was also digging it for, you know, for that reason. I mean, I was 
fun with the out stuff, but it was super cool to hear the Bond theme when it came up too. I just always thought like, yeah, I really like that that idea that like we can hit you with all this stuff and it it all just kind of comes together in this beautiful amalgamation, which I've I've always appreciated. You know, part of what I've always wanted to do is let the audience in. And when I was young, I would go see Ross on Roland Kirk. I would see Don Cherry. I would see these people who were kind of pushing the borders with music. But at the same time, the audience, they were really letting the audience in. They let the audience know what they were, where they were going and would give them kind of cues. And it's very interesting with the Bond thing, because I remember when I started Sex Mob, I was only doing basically original music. And I had played a few other people's songs, but it was, but I had, um, at the time I was starting to get into film music and I brought in this little Bond cue and we were playing at the tap bar and it was a full play, full house and people were partying and we're doing our usual wild stuff and we, we're kind of doing a big improv and suddenly the Bond theme hits and the whole bar went nuts. And I realized, okay, this is how it works. You take the people all the way out as far till they're at the edge and then zoop, you bring them in and it's a very powerful thing. And people need that. They love that release that they love that idea of you're taking them to the edge, you're taking them to the edge. They don't really know where they're going. They might be a little scared. They're so close to the edge. And then you zoop, you bring them in and it's this beautiful feeling and it brings everyone together. That's the other thing. It kind of helps create a sudden, like, some of your big community. It's like, oh, we all know what this is. Let's take a quick break from the interview to talk about how you can support what I do. You can keep the archives freely available to everyone and help me keep making this show by becoming a member for $5 a month. You'll get a bonus episode with every regular episode, plus early access to every show, additional bonus material, other behind-the-scenes updates. You'll get thanked by name on an episode, and all of that can be yours at thejazzsession.com slash join. So please become a member today. If you're a musician or someone else who might need a press release or an artist bio, maybe you need liner notes for an album, help editing a Wikipedia page, I've done all of those things and more for many of the folks you've heard on this show and for others too. You can see samples of my work at cranewrites.com. I'd love to write for you, so check out the samples and get in touch. And now, let's get back to the episode. We mentioned the names of the guests who are on this album, but I just want to make sure that we mention the names of the members of the band. So will you just uh, walk us oh, through yeah. the Sex Mob personnel? Well, and also, I want to say something. I've been thinking about this. We may be, after the Modern Jazz Quartet and the Art Ensemble Chicago, 
the lo- band that's had the longest continual membership of any band in uh, in kind of in jazz. I, I I'm such a loaded word at this point, but jazz music history. We've been together 27 years with this lineup. Uh, Don Falzone played bass for the first few months because Tony was, we had a every Thursday gig and Tony was always working on Thursdays. So, and then my friend Don played in the band. And the, but after those first few months, Tony was the bass player in the band. And it's Tony Cher on the bass, Kenny Walson on the drums, and Brigham Krause on saxophone. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I hadn't really considered that. That is an incredible oh. run. So the modern jazz quartet, I looked it up. So they started in 52, but Connie Kay joined in 55. And even though they didn't work the whole time, they, it says basically until John Lewis, whoever died first, John Lewis or Milt Jackson, 1992. So that's a long run. Now, the art ensemble, obviously, has the long, a long, long run. But the interesting thing is the art ensemble didn't always perform with all their members because I saw the band without Lester. I saw the band without joseph i saw the band without roscoe they all would take sabbaticals and the band would keep working wow so but it's always and i shouldn't say it's only been the four of us because there were times in the old days where i would have a sub on a gig but for the last 10 years i've been like yeah if it's not the four of us i won't take the gig okay because you know I used to be a professional musician someone hired me for a gig and a guy couldn't take it i'd be like oh we'll take the gig you know but for the last 10 years, if, if the four of us aren't available, I just say, yeah, well, I'll do something else, but I won't do Sex Mob. I wanted to touch on a thing that is maybe just an interesting fact, which is that this album is, uh, I'm going to say this in a way that makes it sound cheeky, but this album is being released by an art gallery. Uh, it's being released by Corbett uh, yes. versus Dempsey, which is an art gallery. They also curate books and music. I just would love to hear about that connection and why you thought they were the right folks. Well, here's a very interesting thing. So I had a very long and fruitful relationship with Hal Wilner. If you, you should read Hal Wilner's liner notes to the Dime Grime Palace record. I Unfortunately, have. They're, so, they're so small, they're almost impossible to read, but they're hilarious. So I, Hal passed away uh, three years ago at the beginning of COVID um, in April, day after his birthday. Uh, I believe it was April 8th. And whatever day after his birthday. Uh, and um, but I've continued to get what I call gifts from Hal, which, you know, you got to be an amazing person if you can kill, still keep gifts after you've actually physically left the planet. And you're still giving gifts to your friends. And I've received many of them from him. And one of them was this. So the, I, the thing was that I didn't know anything about Corbett versus Dempsey. And um, they released the Hal's. Um, Nina Rota record and when we were originally going to do the Nina Rota show at Outdoors Lincoln Center John Corbett was there and I met him and he gave me a copy of the record and I said oh very nice nice to re-meet you we'd actually had met before and that that was it so I didn't think twice about it and uh, about two years later uh, two years after Hal passed I was trying to figure out what are we going to do with this record? Because where does Sex Mob really live in the so-called music industry? I mean, we're not a jam band. We're not the fresh young face anymore. We're not like some band like that like does the jazz with the fast solos and all that kind of stuff that people do nowadays. It's not slick or anything like that. So where do we really 
live in in in, in this world not because i feel like we're a legacy band like i feel like we're listen we've been a band longer than any other band except for modern jazz quartet and the art ensemble you know i think we are have a certain whether or not you like our music you can't deny it right so uh they had, there was an article in the times about Moki Cherry's uh, exhibit, Don Cherry's wife, that was occurring both at Corbett and Dempsey Studios and in New York and Brooklyn. And they said, oh, they're also uh, releasing some unreleased Don Cherry records. I said, wow, Corbett versus Dempsey, right? Let me go on, let me go on their website and get order this record. I go on the website and I look, and there is not just Don Cherry, not just Hal Wilner, there's Lester Bowie. There's Sun Ra. There's Van Dyke Parks. You know, I was like, this, this is where I belong. This is my world. So I just sent, I had John's uh, email address from the, when I met him at, at, at Hal's, at, at, and I just sent him two songs. The next morning, I immediately get an email back. We put this out in a second. <laughs> I realized. Can you believe that? And I had gotten some, you know, from, from when I had put out the community record, community music record, I had gotten some very, very positive rejection letters from some of the very best um, record labels in, 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 in the States. You know, the usual, the usual, like, you know, we're such fans of your music and I'm sure you're going to find a beautiful home for your incredible music. But these guys like, no, we'll put this out in a second. And I realized I found a home for it because it does make sense. Because that is my world. My world is a world of Van Dyke Parks and Lester Bowie and Hal Wilner and Don Cherry and Sun Ra. up off the air, but actually I think it fits in with what you just said. Um, about 15 years ago, I I was living in Rochester, New York, and it has an art house theater in it. And I heard about a concert movie and I it was called Leonard Cohen, I'm your man. And I was, I was not a fa- Leonard Cohen fan. I barely even knew who he was, if I'm being honest. But I saw in the write-up for it that you were leading the band and I was a fan of you. So I went and I went every night that they showed it. I think for a week and a half, I went every, the first night I went, I cried. I was amazed by the music and the musicians. I thought, oh my, I don't know what this is. I need to be with this all the time. So every single night I canceled some other plans. They showed it for like a six night run or something like that. And I went every single night. And I also developed a lifelong, well, lifelong since then, the last 15 or 16 years, whatever it's been, love of Leonard Cohen and several of the other musicians 
in the band. But all of that was because I went because I knew one person's name and that name was yours. And that just makes me think like, like you said at the very beginning of this interview, you said, you know, I'm all, I'm also a working musician. I work in a lot of different settings. And first of all, that's beautiful about you as a person and your music, but you like work authentically in a lot of different settings. And by the fact that you do this, but you can bring other people into places they might not have otherwise gone. And you introduced me just by the fact of your existence in that band to a whole other world of music that I just was not hip to and has enriched my world. So thank you. And also that just seems like a cool thing that being a diverse musician allows you to do. Yeah. You know, I always tell people, I said, why wouldn't you want to play with like the greatest with Levon Helm and the music of Leonard Cohn and U2 and Bamba Mall and Hector Laveau and the Scott Shaw and all these incredible things I've done in my life to make, to make a living. You know, that's why I, you know, that's why I, I raised a family playing music. And by the way, that band is sex mob. It's just that Tony couldn't at the very first, the funny thing is it's sex mob with Dom Falzone, the original bass player, because Tony, <laughs> was, Tony was on the road and couldn't make the first concert. So Don got the gig. And so it's actually the original version of Sex Mob on that record, <laughs> uh, on that concert. And that was, again, the long arm of Hal. And I didn't really know who Leonard – I knew Leonard Cohn's name, but I didn't know the music. And, and it was a typical Hal thing where Hal's like yeah, – Hal was a big mumbler. It's like, oh, we got this concert, uh, Leonard Cohn. You think you could uh, be interested in uh, musical directing this? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember I was coming off a – sex mob record a sex mob tour and back then people would give you like a we would all carry um the walkman with us you know the little cd walkman yep and how two cds of leonard cone on i was like we had just landed and i said oh, i better listen to this leonard cone stuff that hal wants me to and i i just listened to a few songs like oh this is simple enough man because every every one of his songs is just like you know three or four chords and i was like oh it's gonna be easy it's gonna be fun you know and uh so i didn't even realize like how deep these songs were. I was just thinking like, what's going to go into like the work part of it, the musical directing, like how much music am I, I going to have to write out to make these happen? And of course I too became a, a huge lifelong fan of Leonard Cohn since then. Cause you hear this, these songs and you go like, how incredible is this? And Leonard Cohn loved what we did. He asked Hal, even he said, you, you think that Stephen Bernstein guy would work with me? <laughs> <laughs> Because he didn't know for all he knew. Like, I was like the most famous guy in the world, you know. He's like, he doesn't know who I am. Um, But, yeah, he sent me a very sweet note. He said, thank you for making these old songs sound new. Because I'm sure he had no idea that – because he's a poet who has a few rhythms he can play and a few chord progressions he can play, and that's how he makes his music. And we took those and we just expanded them out. And I'm sure he had no idea that his music could – be that you know have so much universal language in it ah well that's i'm so glad i brought it up because i'm really happy to have had had that background story that's really great let me ask you uh just i think one more question as we are uh we're drawing to a close um are you have you already or will you get a chance to perform uh music from the hard way live and if so i'm just curious about how it will change in a live setting because you know it's as we've talked about it's uh it's a record that really did use the the studio and the producer as as part of the instrumental process. 
Well, we started playing it live in Europe. We did a European tour in, um, God, my brain is no good at all, but I believe it was this beginning of this year or the end of last year. Either way, either way, we've been playing, we, we did a tour of playing that music. And by playing it every night, we kind of started to create acoustic versions, or I shouldn't say acoustic, live versions of these studio songs. And they've changed, like, because you suddenly see the potential, you start playing them and you go into a certain direction and you say, oh, yeah, this could happen here. This could happen here. Oh, this would be a great way to end this live or this this would be a great way to start this. Or So they've been evolving as we play them live. And we have a but and there's a record release party in uh, New York at Fotografiska, which is an art gallery, which we thought would be a great place to have a, a, a record release party. It's a museum, actually, not an art gallery. It's a museum. And we thought, what a perfect place to do um, a record release for this record since it's being put out by an art gallery. And we're actually going to do the one piece, Fletcher Henderson, that the record starts with, which we haven't ever tried to play live. But so we're going to kind of create a live version of that for that concert. Yeah. Oh, that's great. My guest is Stephen Bernstein. Sex Mob's new album is called The Hard Way. It's been such a thrill to talk to you. Thanks so much for taking the time to do it. Jason, thank you so much. And thank you for bringing me in from a parched 16 years in the desert. <laughs> I'll have you on again before 16 more years pass. Thanks again. Steve. Yeah, I hope so, man, because otherwise you're going to, uh, who knows who you'll be talking to at that point. <laughs> Thanks to my guest, Stephen Bernstein. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the intro. You can message me for more info about Sarah. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. You can follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H. It's on threads and Instagram and TikTok for reasons passing understanding at the Jazz Session. You can take a second right now to rate and review the show wherever you listen, Apple Podcasts or anywhere else. It greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners. I also have a second podcast called A Brief Chat, which is like the jazz session, but not about jazz. It's with other people about whatever interests them. You can find that at abriefchat.com. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, my poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. And if you dig what you just heard, become a member for five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.